To another tantalizing episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast. One of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Benny. Good to be with you again, friends, as we dive into a franchise. Has it been long since we, what was the last franchise we did? Hmm. Hmm. Can't think you, of you know what? Head. Whatever. We're doing it live. We uh, <laughs> we are going to talk about the Universal Invisible Man franchise yes there are additional invisible man films but we're just focusing on that original that first run cooler. yeah the originals too not the modern yeah just yeah. to clarify not there. the new invisible man which is a great movie sure uh not any of the hollow man's not memoirs of an invisible man we just going back to the old black and white do the charleston films so <laughs> Jesus. son of a bitch so, um, I believe this was Vinny's idea. Twas. Well, tell us why. <laughs> well, because we pretty much covered, we've covered Frankenstein, we've covered Dracula, uh, we've done, what, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, mm-hmm. we've done The Creature from the Black Lagoon. This is kind of the last of the Universal franchises that we haven't touched yet, so. Until Wilson makes us watch uh, the Mummy franchise. No, we've done that too. We yeah, mummy I episode. kind of covered it uh, kind of organically in our Mummy Roundtable okay. kind of episode. Yeah. Didn't force that one, although I love them. Because I just like when you tell the stories about Lon Chaney Jr. being drunk playing the Mummy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when he cracks the Night Watchman's head on the, the door there. <laughs> one of my favorite stories. So, yeah, just because we hadn't gotten to it yet. And, you know, Universal came out with those uh, collections. Oh, years the Legacy ago. Collections, yeah. Yeah. And, uh,. This is the last one of them, I think, that we haven't covered yet. And I had recently acquired it. And I didn't realize until we had picked it, and I actually opened it, because I'd gotten it recently, that uh, there were more movies than I thought there were for this. I thought there were four. Uh, turns out there are six. So, And here we are. Yes. All right, Professor, yeah. will you be our tour guide? Sure. Uh, the We'll kick things off with the, uh, the big one. The Invisible Man, 1933. Directed by James Whale, uh, based upon the novel from H.G. Wells, starring Claude Rains, Gloria Stewart, Henry Travers. Uh, you would know Claude Rains from The Wolfman, uh, namely for listeners of uh, this podcast. Gloria Stewart was in The Old Dark House, which we have covered already, mm-hmm. as well as later on in Titanic as Rose, uh, recounting her stories. And then uh, Henry Travers uh, is Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are your main uh, one's there, and then a very frequent name that will be associated with these films that we're discussing uh, for the special effects photography, John P. Fulton, uh, frequently uh, oversaw kind of the magic that went with these movies. Uh, initial thoughts on the original classic? My first time watching all of these films. 
Even including the first one? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> My only experience with the Invisible Man in the Universal era was at the end of Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein. Ah, where Vincent Price talks mm-hmm. to him in the boat. You uncultured swine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was out to dinner the other night with uh, Brent Terhune, friend of the show, been a guest. Uh, the Invisible Man is his favorite Universal monster. Of all of them? Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yep. <clears throat> uh, I have... I don't know how many times I've seen this. I've seen this one a lot. Uh, Professor and I, pre-pandemic... Was it pre-pandemic that we saw this in the theater? Uh, this was, was post-pandemic. Post-pandemic. Yeah. But we saw this as part of a double feature. Yep. And so I've got... That was an interesting experience to see that on the big screen. It was fantastic. Um, if you haven't seen it on the big screen and you're in the region, I believe this summer the Skyline Drive-In in Shelbyville, Indiana will be showing this movie at well, a drive-in, which is pretty dope. Uh, but yeah, I've seen this movie countless times. I, it, It's not my favorite of the Universal. Certainly not my favorite of the franchises. But this movie itself is really good. I really like this one. The special effects in the time frame. I, I mean, even... I'm not going to say, obviously they can be done better now, but it still holds up pretty well for a movie that's a decade shy of being 100 years old. Yeah, I, I would make <laughs> the argument of the original run um, up through the 50s, of all these original cycles of these properties, that this has aged the best in terms of special effects. Um, this still wows me. Mm-hmm. Um, I And my dad has pointed this out, too. We've both done the same thing where we just played it with commentary, where they literally break down like this black velvet technique. Mm-hmm. Where, and it still, it doesn't matter. I know how they're doing it. It still blows my mind. Like And, and so you have things with uh, Jack Pierce's makeup and some of these other movies. And that stuff's great. I love all of them. But I can pinpoint what I'm watching. This still makes me go, Oh, that's cool. That is so cool. The 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 way that when he's unraveling it and other things, it, it's aged so. And that well. black velvet technique, they Jim Henson used that as well, and I'm pretty sure that's the same effect that were used for the was it the 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 fireys, the fun gang in Labyrinth, the ones that pull mm. their heads off uh, and everything. Yeah. I think that's the same same thing that they used for that that many years later. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, initial thoughts, Grizz, for your first time viewing. It's a cool movie. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I I, I mean, just from the very beginning, I love that open, uh, that wintry tavern. Underrated winter horror. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. But it's a good movie. Um, <laughs> as I told you off air, I'll soften it for the listeners. But, <laughs> watch an av- but this movie sets the tone right from the very beginning. I'm like, Invisible Man, more like an invisible jerk, if you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> But that's part of the psychosis that comes along with being invisible. Sure. Uh, um, the Invisible Man is far more evil than any other monster. Oh, leaps and bounds. Yeah. The body count in this first film, I think, exceeds... Every other monster combined? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, you, you have something like the Wolfman. Yeah. I think he kills one or two people in that. And he's a victim. Right. He's a victim of his own curse. Yeah. The Frankenstein monster is... It's not his fault he even exists. He didn't choose to be that. And no. what he is, you know? And, and it's mostly because of the way society treats him that he's the way that he is. Invisible Man is kind of a dick. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's... Uh, this one was, I mean, even some of the dialogue, which we'll get into, but I mean, yeah, this one was a, um, it was a meaner universal monster. Yeah. 
So, so my initial. And not not only is, and he's articulate. Yeah. You you don't really get that since Dracula was articulate, but the Frankenstein monster, the creature, all that other stuff, and so this guy's like, he has the cognitive capacity of a normal person. Yeah, and I can't. And they said that Claude Rains was not the first choice for this, but I can't imagine anybody else giving the performance that he gave just in a disembodied voice. And he was relatively unknown, which is uh, the case as well for the sequel. Uh, so you have to wait the whole movie before you you see what your main character of your movie looked like. Yeah. And for audiences, that was, that was something back then, was to have Certainly. to wait wait for that till the very end of it. And the runtime on this is what, an hour and 11 minutes? It's not long. Yeah. At all. So there's you're less than 10 minutes in before yep. you get your first minutes. effect. First visual effect. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. It really is. Anybody want to hit a quick short synopsis? Uh, we can kind of trade off on these. I can do this first one here. Um, so the movie opens with Dr. Jack Griffin, played by Claude Rains, uh, who... As we have discussed, it's just a voice through most of the movie. Uh, checking into a room above a bar, uh, we deal with uh, kind of some nosy uh, patrons there, uh, namely played by Uno O'Connor, who has one of the most obnoxious screams in film history. Oh, my yes. God. Uh, to the point where it almost makes you want to mute the movie. Uh, <laughs> she's in a, a number of films in the 30s and 40s especially, but as, just... Specifically in this one, I mean, it is taxing. Yeah. It's like, shut the hell up, we get it. Um, but he uh, he has left uh, peers behind, Dr. Cranley and Assistant Kemp, um, along with his girlfriend Flora, played by Gloria Stewart, who we mentioned was in the also in the Old Dark House, who is the daughter of Dr. Cranley. Um, and Dr. Kemp is kind of playing the weasel. Uh, that's just kind of trying to wedge his way in on her while also dealing with this. Um, we, uh, amidst the nosy patrons of the bar, have our first showcase uh, for the Invisible Man with these citizens as they invade his room, and he lays it down for him, and he has him undo his outfit. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of my favorite things in, in all of movies ever. Um, it's just, it's so cool, the yeah. way he unravels his outfit. I had on there in my notes that that nose and glasses being gone as he unwraps had to blow audiences minds. Yeah, I mean really think about that. Mm-hmm. We're we're like as you said, we're we're coming up on a century here. And so even still when I watch this at home it wows me. So imagine being in 1933 in the movie theater where you have not had that long of a history of movies and sitting in the theater and having that unfold in front of you. You haven't seen Terminator 2 yet. Right. <laughs> I mean, that is just... That, this is pants-shitting material yeah. at yeah. the time. Yeah. It's yeah. like, how in the hell are they doing that? Um, and so it just unravels there for the citizens who have invaded his space, and it kind of spills out into the streets. We've got just the chaos of him showing what he can do by being invisible. Um, you have the bicycle riding down the street, uh, rocks going through the window just and being a jerk like ah. yeah just just basically showing his potential for anarchy early on um he smokes that cop in the head with a stool yep. it looks brutal <laughs> so we also at the same time go back to the lab where he originates from 
as the peers discuss monocaine, which is the drug that has entered his system that is that is basically enabling this. And uh, obviously, you get the usual kind of traditional worry from the girlfriend, played by Gloria Stewart. Um, <clears throat> basically, Griffin shows up to strong-arm Kemp into his diabolical plan, uh, where he returns for his notebooks. Uh, this is all while the police are inquiring uh, his whereabouts and what's going on. And then the officer believes it is a hoax, uh, running the inquiry for the community, where you also have the great segment there where he's jumping all over the tables and just wreaking havoc in there. Uh, but also kills the officer in a rage. This is something I feel like in two years wouldn't exist in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, and the drug that he's taking also, part of the plot point, is that it slowly makes <coughs> him mad. Sure, yep. So I guess, and in that way, he is a victim as well. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah. they don't play on the sympathy in this no. one. Yeah. Um, it says, uh, you know, Kemp betrays Griffin, and so... You basically have this great sequence where he get he sneaks into the car with him, and and but he said at at one point tomorrow I will kill you at ten o'clock, and you're just like okay that that's kind of cool he's he's getting specific here, uh, but Griffin goes on a killing spree he derails a train which ups our body count beyond any and other the train monster. crashes fucking gnarly yeah, yeah. it really is, <laughs> um, throws searchers off the cliff that are out seeking for him. I mean, we have really put down the blueprint for oh yeah a, a, a pretty gnarly villain and monster in this. Um, you have great sequences as the manhunt ensues, where they're setting up traps uh, for Griffin, and he uses Kemp as bait, and that and as I mentioned earlier, he ends up in the back seat of the car uh, where he tapes Kemp down and then drives him off of a cliff. Kemp, who was trying to sweep. Uh, Swoop in on the girl as well. My name um, is Kemp. Got got. Yeah, Kemp got it. Um, but they uh, they set fire to a barn where he flees, and it has that great sequence where we've got the snowy footprints, which is one yes. of the things I always think about for this movie. And I think that they did something where I'm trying to remember. Do you remember how they did this? Like either they did reverse I photography, they had something underneath, or something it. to pull. Down on it, but it it looks fantastic. Yeah, it looks great. It so look great. so many things from that era have not aged the best, but that has James Whale well was even meticulous some things with details. later down the line in the series. Yeah, aren't as good as as that. Yeah, very true. Um, during this sequence, though, where we have the snowy footprints and him fleeing from the barn, he's shot, uh, which lands him ultimately uh, bedside. Uh, and we've got, you know, kind of the moment of atonement with Flora, and then we show. He slowly mm-hmm. becomes visible with his circulatory system showing. Which is skeletals. Cool. Yeah, fuck yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, the rise and fall of his breaths when he's still invisible in the hospital bed in the sheet mm-hmm. is pretty a pretty cool effect. Uh, you've got Dwight Fry in there as a reporter. I'm a huge Dwight Ooh, Fry yes. fan. Good call. Um, it's a pretty fucking cool movie, man. And like I say, an it's hour and really eleven good. minutes. Yeah, they pack a lot in. Yeah. Um, some of the dialogue that that lets you know this is a different type of Universal movie. Um, he literally says out loud, "I can rob, rape, and kill," <laughs> and you ain't getting that in any other Universal right. movie, right? You know. Um, and also then where she's like, "Oh, my father can help you," and he's like, "Your father's a tapeworm, a maggot." 
I was like, oh, I'm like, <laughs> doctor, take it easy, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's wild. It really is, and and so uh, it's fun too that some of the uh, some of the hijinks are comical. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not all you know. It's it's malicious, but it's still like some of it can be lighthearted. You know, it's got that got, whale feel. Yeah, where you mix in a little bit of macabre humor. Yep, and you got you know there's your characters like the hysterical barmaid who's very annoying and you've got kind of like funny cops you know they're talking about how you're all nuts until it happens and then comical scenes where the cops are trying to catch him <laughs> um you got the famous scene with the cops all linking arms and like walking in mm-hmm. and i'm like guys that is a great scene i'm like come on guys just kick chucky like <laughs> <laughs> you can set up situations where an invisible human if you know he's in a spot is not gonna get away from you but i digress it was 90 years ago right um but yeah, no. Overall, it was it's a wild movie. Um, it's aged really well. Yeah, it has. It is one of Universal's classic, classic Universal's best offerings. Yeah. And James Whale proved from the onset that no matter what he was given, he was going to make the bot the the best possible picture that he could with any kind of financing restrictions. He was always going to set forth the best thing. Uh, that was possible, and I think this is this along with Frankenstein are just remarkable achievements for him, mm-hmm. for sure. Good stuff, yeah. And one of the better uh, opening films to a property for Universal. Oh yeah, Frankenstein as well. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Also, James Whale, just fantastic first entries. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, do you me throw out some basic info for the next one? Yeah. Yeah, Invisible so. Man Returns, 1940, directed by Joe May. Uh, again, visual effects, John P. Fulton. Back for that, starring Vincent Price. Sir Cedric Hardwick and Cecil Calloway are the notable names from other Universal horrors that you might recognize. And it's important to recognize also that this is seven years after the first one. Um, and you really had a boost with the second cycle uh, from Son of Frankenstein and the success of that that made them kind of reevaluate not only... Uh, sequels for some of these properties, but also kind of tapping back into the uh, literary IPs mm-hmm. um, that really seem to kind of extend further than just generic film ideas. Right. So uh, this is a product of that, but also uh, s- still them trying to maintain prestige. Um, there is clearly money and, and effort put into this film that even uh, – for a lot of its peers in 1940 with Universal were not happening. They they treated uh, this franchise, as we will see often, with much more respect than a lot of the other ones. First time watch. <laughs> and, yeah, this is another good one. It is. I've seen this one not as many times as the first one, but I've seen it. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that Vincent Price was not a well-known actor at this time. No, this is kind of his emergence yes. into the And the so, genre. again, like the first movie, because Claude Rains was uh, popular on stage overseas before The Invisible Man, but not necessarily here. Yeah, which we I don't think we ever clarified. That's, that's what brought him uh, over with Whale, was his voice specifically yes. from the stage work that they shared. Uh, but So Vincent Price was not well-known, and, and we... One of your criticisms, Grizz, on when, when we did uh, the Abominable Doctor Fibes, was that Vincent Price uh, didn't really have any expression in his face; it was just his voice. But I think this also shows why that voice is so important. 
and the gravity his voice had. I mean, even Thriller in the 80s, they used Vincent Price's voice. So he's relatively unknown. So once again, you repeat the same thing in the first one where the audience has to wait until the end of the movie for the reveal to see who has been playing this invisible man the entire time, which I think is a cool thing. And that's the thing, too. I don't think he had entirely honed the craft of his voice at this time. At all. Because no. it took me a while to go, oh, wait, that's Vincent Price. Yeah, it like, did- it's not immediate. It's not immediately yes. apparent that it's Vincent Price. <laughs> yeah, he Devils. hadn't leaned into the joy of, of a, a whole other career in yeah. the ham. Be- because you have early offerings, um, Dragonwick, House of the Seven Gables. There were some things where he dabbled in kind of like horror adjacent, mm-hmm. but not full-blown that we would go on to know like 50s, 60s, 70s Vincent yeah. Price. And so this is really kind of his true arrival mm-hmm. Uh to, to the genre. Yeah. The, it has a great opening logo. It does. Like, it really good. Uh, I like the fact that amongst the other special effects, you get some stop motion in this, which I'm always a fan of stop motion. I don't know why. I Because it's practical, that's probably why. And if you've learned anything about it, you know the, the passion and craft. And the painstaking, it. yeah, yeah. Makes it all the better. Yep. So do we want to hit the basic plot? Sure. Uh, Vincent Price plays... uh, He's the brother of the original Invisible Man. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, Who has been falsely imprisoned for a murder he did not commit. Right, sorry. He's accused of killing his brother. There you go. But we've still got a later tie-in with the original. So while he's in prison, he has slipped the formula which allows him to escape in the hopes that he can get out, escape, get turned back to normal in time before the, what, what's it, monochrome or whatever? Monocane. Yep. Monocane makes him insane. And in the meantime, try to clear his name. That's your basic plot device for this for this whole movie. Yeah, I mean, that it's it's really that simple of a setup where uh, you, you have the freed man while he basically deals with being wrongfully imprisoned and dealing uh, with that. How do we feel about the quality of this film um, in terms of production value from the original and the special effects? I, I feel like it's really they're really trying to lean back into the same quality. Oh, I think yeah. it's neck and neck. Yeah. Like there's the uh, where he's visible in the rain and in the fog. Mm-hmm. Those are really fucking cool effects. Like it's alluded to in the original. Where uh, Claude Rains is telling the guy, yeah, you will have to be careful in the fog or if it's raining because then I'm visible. He says it, but you actually get to see it happen in this one. Uh, so I do think that uh, they they put, the, I feel like they put the same effort into this that they did in the first movie, which going down the line, I will not say. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, about the same. Um, it... In some ways, they like try to do some new things to showcase some of the special effects, and then in some ways, it feels like they didn't overdo a bunch of new stuff to try and sell it. So it's they didn't. Um, I don't know. Like they stuck to conventional stuff, and you would think with a sequel, they might try and church it up a little bit more or go for bigger type stuff. And I mean, you get some of that with like the guinea pig, etc. But other than that, I mean, they really didn't try to do, they didn't try to go above and beyond what they had done in the first film. I think their smart move was they made this a sympathetic invisible man. It certainly takes on a different tone. Yep. 
Um, because, you know, as kind of the basic uh, setup that you threw out there, it, it's really a nice device um, for kind of his journey as he investigates and deals with uh, those responsible for what he's been in prison for. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets, uh, he, let's see, we've got him cornering the recently promoted night watchman by forcing the car off the road. Because um, this night watchman gets a suspect promotion. Yeah. Like for a guy of his cognitive capacity and yep. work ethic, it's, Strange that he gets it, and you basically are finding out he got the promotion because he knows who killed his brother. Yep. And for keeping it hush hush, he yeah. gets promoted. Played by Alan Napier, the future Alfred on Batman, um, and he admits, you know, as you said, that he was paid off by Richard, uh, played by Sir Cedric Hardwick. Um, and it's a lot more pronounced in this film that they know that it causes insanity, mm-hmm. and so you know they're like. It, what is the point of freedom? You know, are you going to do take invisibility at the cost of your sanity? And then, you know, before he takes the next shot, he's like, well, how long before I descend into madness? Right. You know what I mean? Like he's, it's a race against the clock. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Whereas like in the first movie, he just leaned in. Yeah. He don't give a fuck. He's like, I am crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, you kind of have where this is articulated and explained that, um, Radcliffe's cousin, um, played by Hardwick, Richard Cobb, bludgeoned Michael, his brother, to death. Um, and the Nightman witnessed this and then was bribed for it. Um, we then kill this Nightman, um, and we have our main character in Radcliffe escaping. Um, and he, it's, it's basically a journey where we have him chasing after um, Cobb, our villain, and the inspector, Samson. Uh, played by Cecil Calloway, uh, kind of chasing after them at the same time. Classic tropes uh, of, of movies in general with that. Um, you have a nice segment where Radcliffe steals uh, the Scarecrow's suit oh, and, yeah. and stumbles yeah. to the doctor. Um, and he's he, been shot at this point, yeah. right? He's losing a lot of blood. Yep. And and sorry, I kind of jumped over that there, is that we, we kind of have more of the, the showdown, uh, the results in him being wounded. There's a um, kick-ass uh, coal cart death yes. as well. Would you like to specify on that a little bit? Uh, uh, not really, okay. <laughs> because <laughs> my note just says coal cart death, and I remember the coal cart death, but I don't remember any of the, the uh, context around it. Yeah, there... Same. Well, go ahead. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have... Uh, our, our main villain is killed in the process, as, as we're talking about here, but Radcliffe is wounded, um, and we have him stumble in on uh, the Scarecrow suit. But we suit. get the confession. Yes. We get the confession before. Yes. So, that's and, and so he's kind of cleared on, on what yes. the movie has opened up with him being wrongfully in prison for. Uh, and he is saved with a transfusion. Because he's lost a shitload of blood from being yeah, shot. from the bullet wound. Uh, and it's, unlike the first one, happy ending. Because he had lost so much blood and they give him new blood, it negates the effect. Now he's normal. And we get that equally, maybe even better... It's cool. Return to visibility. Yeah, it's a great build-up. Yes. Um, and so not only is he kind of remedied from what he's been injected with, but he's also cleared, now a free man, and reunited with Helen. And Price is so young. He is. Like, it's for fans who know him from the 70s and all of that, 
to see Vincent Price this young in a movie, I think, is kind of a treat. Oh, yeah. I agree. Uh, something else to point out with this movie um, that really kind of stands out for me every time I watch it is how beautiful the score is. It's kind of unusual for, you know, pulpy fare of this era. I mean, this has a really prominent score through the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, very present in the scenes. It's not in the background. It is there. Yeah. Uh, this was inspired music that they put to this. Uh, which then really lends itself again to the value that they were they were believing mm-hmm. in this. It's got some money behind it. It doesn't always, but it's a, it's a more respected property than a lot of the franchises that Universal had. For sure. Good times. Invisible Man Returns. I would make the argument... Uh, not as good as the first, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I would I would certainly make that argument as well. Something that you might not think initially, yeah. as as uh, the first one is kind of celebrated as a true classic, but second one's pretty good. It is good. After that, I I don't know. Well, we're <laughs> things are going to get interesting. Okay. Uh, anything else to add for our second entry? No, there? but I would definitely watch that one. Like, it, yeah, if you that. enjoyed the first one, get right into the Invisible Man Returns. Uh, quickly cranked out the Invisible Woman, 1940, directed by Edward A. Edward Sutherland. Well, let's take a moment. What year was the Invisible Man Returns released? 1940. And what year was the Invisible Woman released? 1940. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, directed by <laughs> A. Edward Sutherland. Uh, this is written by Kurt Schadmack, who, uh, beyond uh, on commentaries frequently being pronounced as both that and Siodmack. Uh, we'll leave that up to the listeners to decide. Uh, this is also starring Virginia, Virginia Bruce, John Barrymore, and Margaret Hamilton, and in a smaller role, Shem Powered. Shem Powered. Three Stooges fame. Um, initial thoughts on this one, I'll just open. Not a fan. New. Uh, sharp change in tone. This is a comedy. This is not a horror movie. Straight up, I mean, when I say Shimp Howard's in it, (laughs) that should give you... Shimp or fake shimp? (laughs) Shimp. Straight up shimp. So, sharp change in tone and quality. Um, It's cool to see Margaret Hamilton in something that's not the Wizard of Oz. Yep. Uh... Some decent visual effects in yeah. this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that they're lacking there, but I don't know. I just don't know what the logic was going into this to change it that drastically from what you already had. And but on other times, I'll criticize things for doing the same shit over and over. So, and a kindness I'll pay this movie was a novel idea, a model seeking revenge. Yeah, you know, like it's. I'm about to say it was a great idea, but it was a novel idea to to, to go with a completely different kind of plot. Did twist. you see that was John Barrymore? Yes, uh, I I read playing Professor Gibbs that this was uh, towards the end. Yeah this this was not a high spot in his career. He was not no he didn't have the uh, prestige that he had earlier in his career, and like Bela Lugosi later, sure. uh, B movie. Directors kind of used him to Cash give their it. movies a little more uh, prestige. Without question, yeah, John Barrymore. It, it's it's fun to see him in a playful movie like this until you take a step back and kind of think about in the overall grand scheme of things, it's kind of depressing because this guy was like top of the world yep. not that long yep. before this, and this is near the end of his life, 
and now you have the great profile kind of in this cartoonish. And isn't he kind of like he's like a mad scientist yeah. who loses his funding from this Playboy financier yeah. and uh, uh, is seeking volunteers? A sure. very tropey uh, role for that era too. Sure, and this is this is a man that ten fifteen years before this was arguably the greatest talent in the world. Is, is this um, is Drew's grandfather? I I can't even begin to keep track of that. It's it's a, it's, a, a, it's, it's around yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. my dad would be embarrassed that I can't answer this yeah. readily. But yes, same lineage though. Um, Your father just spit on the ground. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he spit for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll let I'll let one of you guys take All your lead stuff's on this. Be the front lawn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all I've got to say on the. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to spend any more time on this. I just. If, if you like the first two, I don't know what you're going to get out of this. Unless you are looking just from a purely special effects appreciation point of view, I really don't know what you're going to get out of this movie. Well, and it, it's also important to remember, too, that during this era, there had been a lot of success with gangster movies leading mm-hmm. up until then, of which we tie in uh, that with our fashion model played uh, by Virginia Bruce playing Kitty Carroll. Um, she ends up intertwined with gangsters. You have a whole lot of hijinks and her uh, ending up with leading man Dick. Um, and just... I, I don't know. This this really is just a lowbrow cash-in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uninspired. Um, I, I will say, for people who are interested in vintage comedy, it's worth taking a look at. It's interesting kind of the genre mashup here in the sense of you take a horror property that had made two really good movies and then right on the tail end of that you inject this comedic attempt with it within the same year and it has a <laughs> the other one I mean like it's like it's, son of Kong material yeah, yeah it's yeah, that's a good point it's it's got <laughs> I mean, there's a few laughs, and it's got a decent pace to it, but it's just, eh. Yeah, not a, not a fan. I will, I will say, though, the effects are still decent. Yes. They really are. Yes, they are. Um, but this is, I, I mean, do we even want to go through any more of the plot on this? I, no. I, I don't think it's interesting. No. It's abysmal for a third entry to for, for two movies that have been really good pretty yes. prior to that. Um Okay, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, another one I'm not particularly crazy about, Invisible Agent, 1942, directed by Edwin L. Maven, screenplay again by Kurt Schadmack, effects again, John P. Fulton. This is starting, starring uh, Iona Massey, John Hall, Peter Lorre, and Sir Cedric Hardwick. Um, and 1942, this, is, this has got some heavy propaganda oh, to it. Oh, heavy war propaganda. I mean, this is wild. I mean, the United States had, by and large, taken a, an isolationist point of view towards World War II. And then, you know, Pearl Harbor gets bombed at December of 41. And this movie's coming out in 42. I mean, that is quick. Like, the suits are like, all right, boys, we got to give some morale to the troops now. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's interesting, too, with because Hollywood had... It's not something that's... Um, a heavy point of focus, but Hollywood really kind of ignored fascism for a number of years. Wonder why? Uh, yeah, 
Um, Still today. And then it kind of just got out of control to the point where it's like, okay, let's let it bleed into the the entertainment. And and, uh, the Mortal Storm with Jimmy Stewart really kind of is one of the early announcements of like, okay, we're not cool with this. This is bad. And so it kind of just starts to creep in more and more and more to movies, especially especially in an effort where they're trying to raise money mm-hmm. and, and gain enthusiasm for pitching in. And so it really takes a stranglehold uh, by this entry here. Hey, help fight Nazis. Watch yeah. the new Invisible Man. Thoughts? It, it took me... I didn't realize... I mean, growing up, you, we learn about World War Two, and it's Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. You know what I mean? And a lot of films, that's what you see, too. Me being a an anima- animation nerd, as well, especially a Popeye nerd, uh, the Popeye film, uh, cartoons, when Popeye became the white sailor suit U.S. Navy Popeye during the wartime, I didn't realize that really the focus for the U.S. in World War Two. More so than the Nazis, the Japanese were were our nemesis, and that's really where the focus was. Um, so this has that element in it because it took me a minute where I was like, "Wait a minute, is Peter Lorre supposed to be Japanese?" And then I yeah, was this like, is back in the so era. Uh, shook. This <laughs> is back in the era where uh, J. Carol Nash played every ethnicity that they needed. <laughs> and I was like, "Peter Lorre supposed to be Japanese?" I was like, "Well." At least they didn't go the Boris Karloff, Charlie Chan route with sure. it, you know, with uh, the makeup. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that kind of blew my mind when I finally realized that he was his, supposed to be Japanese. This is his only universal horror. Peter Lorre's really, really yeah. for a, as much of a icon as he yeah. is of the genre. This is it. He wasn't in any of the Mummy movies. No. Huh. This is it. Uh, now he has his presence in the genre, obviously, especially later on. Um, with Corman movies and, sure. and and stuff as we move up a little bit, but yeah, this is it. You would think more so, but like Mad Love, some of these other ones, one Universal. This I kind of like one. in this movie that they abandon the bandaged head and they go with that cold cream effect. Yeah, where he, and it's like okay, that's neat. And then they kind of they explore that later in that uh, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie that was mm-hmm. made. Uh, but with this, it's like oh man, that's a cool idea. Did he put it on his teeth and his tongue, too? Because you can clearly see the interior of his mouth. If I'm nitpicking, uh, I said to you guys separately, and I, this movie is so bad that I almost started rooting for the Nazis. Like, Which I enjoyed. Here's the, here's the crucial question i got to ask. This or woman? Invisible woman. I'm taking. I would rather watch this for historical context. I think that I would agree with you on that. And I think Peter that Lurie. I, I yes, I would. I Peter Lorre's performance is good in this. Yes. Uh, I but I'm not. I'm not racing to watch either one of them again. At all. No, I I've come and I'll just clarify now before we even through all these movies. I was raised in a household that likes three movies from this. Uh, and we've already covered two of them. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, between the two, I don't know. This one I softened on with this revisit. They're though. equally meh to me. Yes. I don't. I didn't hate either one of them. Now the parachuting scene in this, I found more interesting than anything in Woman, right off the bat. So I'll yeah. just say that. Um, 
I really like the scene too where he's trying to burn the formula before the Nazis can get to it. I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, not It's uh, largely a miss. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot more movies that I disliked than this. Yeah. <laughs> so our our main character, Frank Griffin, it, it just to at least hit some high points for this real quick. Um, he's the grandson of the Invisible Man, uh, run, uh, running a Manhattan print shop. He is in an opening scene where four suspicious men arrive, uh, and we basically represent our axis of evil um, with Lori, Japan, Hardwick, Germany, uh, trying to shake him down for the secrets to the invisibility that his grandfather had. He escapes, uh, wants nothing to do with any of it, then Pearl Harbor happens and inspires him to enlist um and we basically have a back and forth with the hijinks and him and the uh, enemy characters and we also have a romantic interest in maria um and long story short without going through beat for beat it's another happy ending griffin survives reunites with her um and i will say the Axis assholes, as I like to call them, in those two uh, notable yeah. names, are nice. They they add to the entertainment. It's, yeah. This is basically like a matinee um, serial pop boiler from that era, just cranking them out, kind of attitude to it. Um, it's not horrible, but it's not inspired. I think I would rather watch this over The Invisible Woman, because at least I get to watch Nazis get their asses kicked in this. Always been <laughs> that. Yeah, I again I like like you said the cold cream mass thing is is fun. It's a different approach to that and the invisible skydiving sequence is pretty fun. Yeah. That's cool. We ready uh we ready for the next one? I believe I am. Yep. You, you guys sure you don't want to go through the plot a little bit more <laughs> thoroughly? No, that skydiving scene is fun cuz they're like they can't believe their eyes. <laughs> it's an invisible parachute. That's cool. Yeah. Um The Invisible Man's Revenge 1944 directed by Ford Beeb. Beeb. Beeb, whatever you want. Baby. Uh, again, John P. Fulton on the effects, starring John Hall. Again. John Carradine as Dr. Peter Drury and Evelyn Ankers, uh, who you would recognize from the Wolfman playing Julie, and a brief appearance by my favorite character actor, Skelton Nags, who uh, in House of Dracula you would remember as saying, Dr. Edelman. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> with this, just uh, generally speaking, one nice element for sure with this is we are back to the English countryside as we originated with the original writing from H.G. Wells. Thoughts on this one? So initially when I received the assignment, I thought we were to watch four films and was given the Legacy Collection and there were six. And I had not budgeted my time accordingly. And so I reached out to the Venomous One and I said, Hey, bud, brass tacks here. <laughs> if I were to watch three beyond the first, which ones should I watch? And obviously it's, you know, watch the OG, watch Returns, watch Abbott Costello, and then he said, watch this one. You can leave out Agent and Invisible Woman. And, I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> these will be my four Invisible Man movies. That's fair. <laughs> you know I, what I mean? It, that's the same for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Yeah, this was, um, for being this late in the franchise, it was a pleasant surprise. That, 11 years later. Yeah. This this is the gem. Um, this is the one, if you dig into this episode and you go watch these movies, if you haven't before, this is, this is the true surprise. Mm-hmm. I would make the argument, while this is nowhere near the best film 
of these, nor is it the most accomplished. I would make the argument it's the most entertaining. I was going to say, it's it's equally in the race for the most entertaining sequel. Yes, I, I definitively say that. Yeah. And that's to say, I think one and two are better movies, mm-hmm. but I think this is the most crowd-pleasing. Yeah, uh, I think I was is, more invested in this story than almost any of them. Which is ironic, because it kind of plays on vampire tropes. In your face. You're liars. <laughs> You're all little liars. I, it's back to horror. After yes. those two... Uh, Comic book movies. Yes. Yeah, they're like, hey, we got this comedy that didn't go well, and we, we kind of did a propaganda that, movie. Yeah. And this, this gets back works. to it. This gets back to it, and I really appreciate it. There's some cool special effects in this as well. Mm-hmm. There's some that aren't as cool. But there are uh, the aquarium gimmick where he splashes the show and freaks the fuck out of the people in the room with him. That's cool. Uh, there's an effect with flower as well where he's visible again because of it. So there's some there's some really good visual stuff. And, and just being back to horror and you get uh, kind of another take on the Invisible Man yeah. again where... It's not the drug that's making him nuts. Yeah, he's just horrible. He's just kind of a fucking asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Invisible <laughs> jerk, am I right? <laughs> Invisible jerk. Yeah, my note I have right here is uh, kind of like anti-hero, no monocane to blame, shitty human. Yep. <laughs> just yep. no grand plan. Yep. Yeah. Just kind of psycho. Yep. Yeah, and do you want to hit the plot real quick? Should I? Sure. Hit How about it? I was, I was trying to hold out so I could do Abbott and Costello, but okay, I'll do this. You can do both. <laughs> So the whole idea is that this uh, this gentleman is uh, they find him and he's an escaped an escaped homicidal maniac from South Africa. Well, come to find out, what had happened is he is down there. What had happened? Was. What had happened was, and of course, these white British people trying to find what they can steal in Africa. Classic. Classic trope. And uh, he gets hit in the head with a branch, and his memories are gone. So they put him in a, uh, a mental hospital. But then. Uh, it all comes back to him, and he remembers that they've had this discovery. Was it a mine? Uh, some sort of valuable thing that they were... There was an emerald mine. Emerald mine. And uh, they ended up founding Twitter later with the profits. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he remembers kind of that there's this discovery, and he remembers <laughs> that there was an investment agreement. And he comes back, and he gets super shitty with these people. About, hey, you guys just left me for dead down in Africa. They're like, no, the guide told us you were dead. And we'll honor the agreement, you know, 50-50, whatever. They're like, He's like, no, I'll take all of it. And they're like, well, no, we've made a decent life for ourselves here. He's like, hey, and I see that picture of your daughter. I want her, too. I'm going to have that, too. <laughs> um, so, really, he decides to go invisible to, like get back what he thinks belongs to him. Well, let's not forget that these people do drug him. <laughs> so they later slip him, this They slip him a Mickey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, see, this is why I wanted to do Evan Costello. I was more invested in that story. <laughs> yeah, so, but, yeah, so on the flip side of that, they're trying to out-shitty him. <laughs> yes, it's all shitty people. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, I think that's... in. You add this sense of adventure because we've now added in the grand scheme from this business deal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he, he meets the doctor at the crossroads to uh, get this invisible formula. Um, and then he decides, uh, 
you know what? I'm no human guinea pig just to make you famous. You know, he's going to do what he wants to do. Um, um, In this plot, you find out that if he gets a blood transfusion, he becomes visible for a while. Yeah. Whereas, like, it kind of plays off of the previous movie of, of, of Vincent Price. Yeah. But in that one, it was because he had lost so much blood that his blood was replaced. This one is like, no, if I get somebody else's blood temporarily, I'll become visible. Yeah. There's a really bad visual effect in this movie with the wires. Yeah. On the legs when he moves over to the table. I can't really forgive that one. Can't win them all. Especially because hey, of listen, how they painstaking they were on all the other movies. They weren't counting on high definition home video later, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That fooled the dullards on the big screen back then. Uh, what's the finish on this one, Vinny? Of, of where he gets killed by a dog? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a dog runs in and mauls him to death? Oh, yeah. The doctor's yeah, dog. Yeah. The doctor's that he stole the blood from. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Drury, which John Carradine is fantastic in that role in this. And uh, I, I wasn't aware of this. Uh, I had read this as well. What's the name of the book that you you gave me for Christmas? Universal Horrors. Yeah. So as I was watching these movies, I was reading those. It breaks down the they're very th- from the 30s and 40s for yeah. each, each movie. It's their so original I went through, Psycho. I went through and read read uh, each one as I finished them, and I wasn't aware. Uh, John Carradine did not enjoy his time in horror and he was a shakespearean actor and yeah even though it gave him a living uh, he rarely had kind things to say about his time in horror movies and interviews over the years however he said he had a good time with this movie uh which is rare praise from him and sure he was in so many horror movies some really bad ones too at the end but he's an interesting actor too because um, he he could do it all. He you would see him in Grapes of Wrath, mm-hmm. and then horror sequels. I mean, like, and he was good in everything. Yeah, they there are stories of him uh, back into the 30s and 40s where people would see him walking like up and down Hollywood Boulevard, just practicing Shakespeare. It was just he was just inherently obsessed with performance, and so I only buy half of that in terms of him being like kind of denigrating particular properties that he was in because it's like dude you're doing them yeah. and you did them your whole life like don't be too hard on them yeah. but man he was so entertaining whether he was hamming it up or just flipping the switch he could do it all also left out that our our uh, protagonist simultaneously antagonist <laughs> uh, also forgot to add his little drunk buddy who's helping him out oh yeah <laughs> Gives him a place to stay, helps him out, and uh, he's going to help his uh, drunk buddy win some money at darts by helping him get bullseye. Oh, oh yeah, where he's moving it for him. Hopefully, <laughs> this was released overseas as just little drunk buddy <laughs> for for having two strong entries in the beginning and two not so great ones in between to then come back with this one. This one's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I'm. I don't know. My dad might listen to this episode at some point. I'm gonna throw this out here on his behalf. Where the hell does Gil Sondergaard go? And the couple that are responsible for screwing him, they just disappear. Yeah, and we never come back to it. As, I mean, like she was an accomplished actress. We, it's like gone. So I just have to mention that. 
Yeah. If, you, if you're <laughs> if you're invested early on in Gail Sondergaard, don't know what don't happened be. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this uh, it, it really kind of plays in, like I said, the vampire gimmick um, where the blood transfusion is helping him. So there's a motive mm-hmm. to harm people. Yeah, um, and it, it's just. It's it, they really just set out to entertain, yeah, and they do that. It's a fun movie. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, any other thoughts on the Invisible Man's Revenge? No, check it out. Okay, uh, moving on to the last one, 1951. Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, directed by Charles Amott, starring obviously Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Uh, yeah, Grizz those, hit those it. are the main two. <laughs> My boys. <laughs> Yes. Abbott and Costello. Um, they just graduated from detective, detective school. school. <laughs> and they're going to go work for this agency. And on their first night, this dude, Tommy Nelson, comes in. And he's like, hey, you got to help me find somebody who, uh, what was it, hit his manager over the head? Or the referee? Uh, manager, I think. Yeah, manager. And... Uh, yeah, mur- it was for murdering his manager. Murdering his manager. And, uh, you know, Bud Abbott's like, all right, man, I'm going to take these notes. We're going to help you out. And Lou Costello is like, that's him. That's the guy. That's the escaped guy right now because he has escaped because he was a- initially arrested for these charges. But he's innocent, right? But we don't know that yet. And so, of course, it's Abbott Costello, so there's a laugh a minute. This is... This is pretty top tier for them, I think this film is. I love how excited you are right now. <laughs> and this, this is inspired by the success of Meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, they went through a whole cycle of using all of these properties again. Um, mostly a decade plus after these had been utilized by Universal. Um, and this, I, w- I would agree, this is more towards the top of those because there are some rough ones. Yeah. If y'all will remember Meets the Mummy... It's that yeah. movie is dog shit. Yeah, yeah. It's I was, it's so I was gonna say, as far as in the horror realm of their films, this is oh yeah, tough. without question. Yeah. Um, and so, essentially, Tommy Nelson has escaped jail because he wants to clear his name. He's a famous boxer. Someone has murdered his manager, and they blame it on him. Well, what you come to find out is, is that he was supposed to take a fall. He didn't. And someone killed his manager because of it to pin it on him. And then hijinks ensue about what's going on in the underworld of boxing and gangsters. There's the setup. That is a good setup. (laughs) Uh, General thoughts on this one? Better than I expected it to be. Better than I remembered. Better than I expected it to be when I looked at the year that it was made when I remembered watching Meets the Mummy. (laughs) And also, of course, Meet Frankenstein is... That's hard. Like, that's the pinnacle. Sure. So all of these things, and then going into it, I was surprised by it. I thought it would be much shittier than it was, and I actually, for the most part, enjoyed it. I mean, there's criticisms I can have if I'm really nitpicking the whole thing, but there's some great bits, like the... uh, money in the pocket bit that they do was solid like you can tell it's guys who have worked with each other for a long time just the chemistry that they had it's you can still see that there with them yeah uh there's i don't know there's some funny bits like uh 
But that they, bit with the speed bag in the boxing the ring? The speed bag bit is funny. It goes on a little too long. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a part where his hat pops off of his head. Twice. And it's like in, in sped up film used afterwards. Like Normally that stuff, I roll my eyes at. I don't know why it made me chuckle. Like It did hit me in the funny bone on this. So as far as Abbott and Costello meets movies, this is pretty good. Sure. I wasn't expecting a whole lot. I'll put it that way. Right. So my expectations were low, and I think that's why I enjoyed it so yeah, much. Yeah, I, I mean, my name is Professor Wagstaff. I love old comedy. That's where my name stems from, not even horror. Typically, Avon Costello, 1950 and after. Yes. Not the strongest. 100%. Um, and so I was kind of remembering this a little unfairly. This is over-the-hill stuff for them, honestly. Sure. But I, I think the blessing for it is that Universal doesn't try and overdo the property. Um, they kind of keep it reasonable with the Invisible Man stuff. They don't try and go too ridiculous with it. Um, and kind of just let Avon Costello cook to the to the level that they could at that point. Um, and I think it works uh, in that regards. Because I'm a huge fan of Meets Frankenstein and Meets the Killer, Boris Karloff. Those two were a huge deal to me growing up. And so everything after that, it's just... Eh. Uh, but this and um, Jekyll and Hyde, I both have uh, a certain soft spot for. But this more so kind of elevated a little bit after this revisit where I watched it and went, you know what? This isn't that bad. Yeah. It's kind of enjoyable. Yeah. I it's, love Luke Costello. It, it's easy to lump it is. their later work together. And I think that this is probably the the better end of it. I agree. Um, so... The doctor won't give Tommy the medicine, so he ends up taking it on his own. And um, essentially what they're going to do, especially with this whole setup with the speed bag, is that they are going to um, have Lou Costello fight this champ guy who was part of setting up Tommy. But Tommy is going to be invisible in the ring with him, throwing punches. Leaning into that kind of dart routine yes, previously. from the previous film. Exactly. And so the whole idea is that we're going to finally get justice for the guy who got killed and get for clear Tommy's name. Um, one bit we forgot to bring up in funny bits is when the police psychologist is trying to, to hypnotize Lou Costello and put him <laughs> to sleep. And then he ends up putting the psychologist to sleep and everyone else who enters the room and it's just this room full of cops and clerks that are asleep because he keeps inadvertently putting them to sleep. It's the one that got a old boy who played Fred Mertz and I Love Lucy in it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Can't remember his name. Sorry, fella. It's escaping me also yeah. at the moment. Yeah. If only we had computers in our pockets. <laughs> Frank Johnson. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> I'm looking it up. Talk amongst yourselves. So, uh, Lucas Stella was a boxer in real life, briefly. Really? Uh, so it's it's fun to see him kind of um, jump into that routine again. Lou the Looper. Yep. He. Uh, I, I read a biography that his daughter wrote, uh, and there's a great story about him hopping out at an intersection for this guy that was being disrespectful and just beating the hell out of him <laughs> right there. Uh, it's a sweet, mild-mannered, funny guy, but he had a temper. Yeah. Um, it's fun to see him lean into the boxing routine here. You William that? Frowley is the yes, guy played Fred Mertz and the Isle of Lucy. It's in this movie. You read that book back when we were in college, didn't you? The year I lived with you? Yeah, I thought yep. so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure did. It's Very good cool. Book. Very cool. But, uh, no, I had a blast with this one. It was... <laughs> 
it was. Uh, you can't go wrong with with these two. I mean, no. they're, they're just they're timeless. Yeah, and Vinny, you're right. That money bit is probably the, the funniest oh, bit yeah. in the whole movie. And just the way that Lou would like look at the camera and break that that fourth wall and wink. Yeah, while he's mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah. Can we talk about the very end though? We we do the where we we rush Lou to the oh. hospital and the blood transfusion, <laughs> and he's visible again. Why are his legs backwards? Yeah. What's happening? That is here? a really weird. Also, why is he invisible slapping nurses' butts? <laughs> Let's go get him canceled. Yeah, he's yeah. naked. <laughs> slapping we'll, butts. Yeah, we'll chalk that up to 51, but I can't. I don't understand the backwards legs. Yeah, I don't get that either. <laughs> I was like, what in the hell is this? Like, it didn't It didn't make me laugh. I mean, I guess. Or make maybe sense. Kids, yeah, I guess maybe kids enjoy it. I, I just saw that and I wondered if you guys thought the same thing. Like, oh, yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this fun. is like the first movie. Yeah. It's like, oh, the other five movies where nobody's legs were backwards. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get that either. Uh, yeah, you know what? Didn't follow. I didn't follow very well with that. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting. Interesting choice at the end. Uh, but all in all, totally worth a watch. Especially oh, yeah. more, more so than Woman and Agent. One last bit I forgot. I just wrote it in my notes. When they're fighting with the gangsters and uh, and somehow the gun ends up in Lou Costello's hands and Bud Abbott goes, go on, give it to him, meaning like shoot him and he just throws the gun to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just stuff like that that I just remember from childhood and the movies that just would make me howl with laughter because <laughs> it was so comic-y. All right. I think we've done, done, busted this open. I think so, too. Kept it pretty concise, too. And really, and, and honestly, for six movies, for only two to be not great, that's a pretty good ratio. You can't go bad with four yeah. of them. Yeah, I agree. Um, just in, in conclusion here, we did we, we covered the new Invisible Man, didn't we? At some point? We haven't. I don't know if no. we did it on the show, but we've certainly talked about it amongst ourselves. Yeah, because yeah. I wondered if we'd included it. In this yeah. one, but no, we haven't done You've that. You both one yet. seen it, yes? yes? Yes, it was the last movie as the pandemic began. Oh yeah, I always think of it as for, as that. Shockingly good. Oh yes. my god, I, like yeah. Shock- I, I kind of thought that later down the road we may do something where it's like uh, Hollow Man and, yeah. and all those newer stuff. That's not necessarily uh, this, but yeah, surprisingly good with with a modern twist. Yeah, and and uh, and strangely rooted in reality. Yeah. Yeah, very well done. Yeah, so good. Uh, I've never seen Hollow Man. You guys have any opinions? Oh on yeah, Hollow Man? That's, a, that's a decent flick. I heard it was good. It. Yeah, that's a decent flick. You haven't seen it? Is that what you just said? Nope. Are you shitting me? No. Nope. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it just came out in a period that I was like, yeah, that, that sounds. Wow. Bad. So, okay, well, Invisible Man. Maybe we'll again. Maybe we'll come back and do like. The new one, Hollow Man. Were you surprised by this, by the way, since you had never seen any of them? I'm sure hearing the assignment and watching it <laughs> for you, I know you well enough. You probably weren't excited that we were doing these, but after watching them. I don't know what you mean. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, look, to say I was pleasantly surprised would be ridiculous because these movies are very popular over time they're iconic yeah Yeah, for a reason yeah it's just that 
I'm a crybaby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, I've been meaning to watch this, but now I have to watch it. Uh. The Grizz actually likes vegetables. You just gotta eat them. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Like, uh, yeah. If you if you make if you cook a new vegetable, I'll try it. And I'll like <laughs> it, and I'm gonna complain about it. So yeah, no, I um, yeah, I did uh, I did enjoy the Good. four that I was assigned, and didn't hate the two that weren't uh, assigned to me. Good. So. All right, wrapping it up for the Invisible Man, or in some cases, the Invisible Jerk, if you know what I mean. Hey, uh, I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I've been joined by... Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Stay scary.